Hello. Uh, good morning, church. My name is Isaac, and I have the pleasure of serving here as one of the pastors. If you're new, I would love to connect with you after service. But today we're continuing our series on 1 Timothy titled, Living as God's Household. The passage that we'll be looking at is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 to 2a, which is actually the first part of verse 2. So would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2a. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are believers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to look to your word. We thank you for your grace that invites us to draw near to you. We ask that, Lord, that you help me to faithfully preach your word, and would you open our hearts so that we may be transformed by your living word. Holy Spirit, would you guide this time? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I don't know about you, if, if anyone remembers the days before Netflix and any other streaming services, uh, it was during the days of the great TV commercials where you had to wait uh, just to finish your TV show. And I remember uh, when I was young having to kind of wait there and have to watch these commercials. And looking back, I don't know how I did it. Uh, these days, Netflix kind of came out with this basic plan where you have ads now, and it kind of reminds me of my childhood. But if you're like me, maybe you did something like this. You'd put on the show, and then all of a sudden, once the commercial hits, you'd flip the channel to see another show. But then if you're lucky, you would get it, you would time it right. But if you weren't lucky, you would get another commercial and another commercial. But I remember in 2001, there was this commercial that came out in, maybe in New York more specifically. It was from the New York Lotto. And they took a line from the song, If I Had a Million Dollars by Bare Naked Ladies. And basically, the commercial was a bunch of people singing this line that says, If I had a million dollars... I'll buy you a house. And at the end of the commercial, sorry, I'm not that good at singing. But at the end of the commercial, it had words on the screen that says this, hey, you never know. And so as a young boy, as I'm imagining watching this kind of commercial, I'm actually thinking, what if I had a million dollars? And so as a young boy, all I care about is games, video games, and buying all these uh, things for myself. And I would often think, wow, that would change my life drastically. You see, today we can kind of substitute that million dollars with many other things. For example, we can say, if I had good health, that would change my life forever. If I had a spouse even, come out to Bridge Seminar, that would change my life forever. And the list goes on and on and on. But for the Christian, there's one thing that actually drastically changed our life forever, and that was the gospel. 
You see, the past couple of weeks, we've been uh, going through specific groups in the household of God, and, ha- and we saw how they were changed by the gospel. We were able to see how gospel living looks like in the household of God. In fact, Paul would use a specific word to help illustrate and to help uh, instruct a church on how they are to care for one another through the gospel. And that word here is honor. Honor is repeated three times in the section. In chapter 5, verse 3, Paul writes, Honor widows who are truly widows. And then in verse 17, Paul goes on to speak about another group where he says, Let the elders who rule well be, be considered worthy of double honor. And then here in today's passage, chapter 6, verse 1, let all who are under yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So the three groups that the household of God are to honor are widows, elders, and masters. And today we're going to be looking at that last group in particular. We, we see that servants are to honor their masters. Now, right off the bat, as I'm saying that phrase, the servants are to honor their masters, it's almost easy for us to jump to conclusions. But before we do, I want to make known to us the social context of today's passage pertaining to slavery. You see, understanding this will help us better understand what is actually being said. And when we read the word slaves here, we must not think about the 19th century slavery. And for some of us who grew up in kind of the American school system, the idea of slaves kind of automatically uh, make us think about the transatlantic slave trade that happened in the 19th century. We think of what we've learned in American history class, and we almost begin to start putting our own conclusions and opinions here. But here in this passage, Paul is addressing the first century Christian slaves in the church of Ephesus. So we must understand that there are some social differences between the slaves in the first century and slaves in the 19th century. And one example of this is that first century slaves were not slaves due to race. But in fact, there there are exceptions to this when it came to times of war. But for the most part, it wasn't a group of people being singled out. Another difference is that unlike 19th century, some slaves became slaves voluntarily because they were in a huge amount of debt. And so in order to pay off this debt, they would go into being slaves to the person that they owe. But probably the most important distinction was that slavery was not permanent. There were different ways for slaves to buy their freedom. But even if you had this way out, it didn't mean that life was grand. Although you may have had security from your master, being a slave signified that you did not have freedom. Everett uh, Ferguson, in his book, Backgrounds of Early Christianity, uh, lays out four ways ancient Greeks defined freedom. The first way is being able to be your own representative in legal matters. The second was protection from illegal seizures. The third is being able to work wherever you please. And lastly, being able to go wherever you wanted. You see, these were all denied for the first century slaves in the church of Ephesus. And as a slave, you were subject to your master. You were considered their personal belonging. So in some cases, you were oppressed depending on who your master was. But not only that, 
you were considered low on the social totem pole. These were the people that were most vulnerable in the church today. They were easily taken advantage of. They were easily overlooked. Now, understanding this, you, you see something interesting about Paul in this letter. You see, Paul takes time to address and not overlook the Christian slaves that are attending the church. You see, although it may have been culturally appropriate for him to overlook these servants, Paul instead turns his attention to them. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul again turns to the bondservants and he says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And even in Colossians, he once again turns to the bondservants and says, Obey in everything those who are earthly masters. And then even in Titus 2.9, Paul doesn't fail to turn his attention to those who are vulnerable. And he addresses them by saying, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. So in a way, as we read these parts in Paul's letters, we begin to see his pastoral awareness for the people in the church. He begins to show them how the gospel can even affect them. And that's the most beautiful thing here, how the gospel can impact and affect those that were simply overlooked, those that people didn't care about. And what does he say to them? Well, if you look at this passage, there are two groups of servants that Paul is referring to He's speaking as he's speaking to the Christian slaves. The first group that he speaks to are those who have non-believing masters. The second group is that he's speaking to those who have believing masters. Now, let's take a closer look at the, at the first group, uh, verse 1, where Paul speaks to the slaves who are under non-believing masters. Here, in verse 1, it says, Let all who are under yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, here in verse 1, this is a specific situation for, those, for these bondservants. Paul's describing this group as those who are under a yoke. Now, a yoke is a wooden frame used to control working animals. And so, when Paul says this phrase, it describes an oppressive situation in which a slave is treated a little more than an ox. It's quite sad. It's quite, uh, it's not a position that you want to be in, but these were the conditions of some of the servants at the church. But notice what Paul says to these people who are serving under harsh circumstances. He says to them, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. You see, Paul doesn't say, let's revolt. He doesn't call out freedom for the slaves, but instead he calls them to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, what does this mean? First, I want to address what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that Paul is endorsing slavery. Paul in 1 Corinthians 20 is pretty clear on what his stance is on slavery. If you look with me in verses 21 to 23, it says, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. 
Paul forbids Christians to be slaves, and he does advise that if slaves can become free, they should uh, pursue it. Therefore, he doesn't just automatically start changing his position and start contradicting himself in 1 Timothy 6. So what is Paul saying as he says to, to the slaves to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor? Last week, Pastor Andrew shared two definitions of honor that were helpful. He says uh, the first honor means reverence or respect. And the second honor is by financial gift. No, I don't think the honor here is a financial one because of the context of the slaves and masters. The dynamic uh, doesn't make sense. But instead, I think it's the first one. Slaves, wouldn't, uh, slaves would honor their masters. And the way that they would honor their masters is through obedient service and faithful devotion. But notice the interesting word here, which is regard. Regard means to think of someone in a specified way. In other words, what this means is that Paul is not saying bond uh, servants honor your masters because they deserve it. Surely these masters who are placing their servants in difficult circumstances should have not been regarded with honor, but Paul tells them that they must. Why? You see, the reason is seen in the end of verse 1, where it says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The slaves were to regard their masters as with honor because of two reasons. So that the name of God may not be reviled and so that the teaching may not be reviled. And what this means is the name of God represents God's reputation and the teaching represents the gospel truth. So bond servants, if they were not to obey and be faithful to their master, if they were not to honor them, in a way, they were insulting God's reputation and the gospel. Now, this is not a new statement. This is not something new that Paul brings up. But in fact, it's a continuing theme that happens all throughout the letter in First Timothy. First uh, Timothy, in chapter two, verse two, Christians are instructed: lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In chapter 3, 7, elders must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You see, Paul is letting the bondservants know that God desires his people to be careful about how they live out their lives because the, the way that a Christian behaves is part of his or her testimony. You see, as a Christian today, by the grace of God, None of us are slaves. And I don't think any of us can relate to the bond servants who are so poorly oppressed. But we can in some way understand the temptation that the servants went through. Uh, we can understand the way, the thought process behind why they didn't want to honor their masters. In a similar way, in a similar way when we have bosses or managers who have authority over us and they be they begin to nitpick and micromanage our work, we get the certain urge to badmouth our superiors, or we sometimes don't want to do our best work for our company. And so what we end up doing is we don't give our full day amount of work to our bosses. There was a trend that happened two years ago, and it was a TikTok trend that blew up called quiet quitting. And it went pretty viral. 
I'm not sure if you heard of this trend, but this trend basically means uh, the quiet quitting is the basic idea that you don't quit your job, but instead what you're quitting is the idea of going above and beyond for your work. You still do what you're supposed to do, but you no longer do your very best for your workplace. And so before we kind of toss it up and say, that's a generational thing, that's a Gen Z or millennial thing. Well, according to Gallup poll in 2022, now this is pretty fascinating. They found out that 50% of American workers practice some sort of quiet quitting. Now it's startling because if we were to kind of split this room in half, maybe this side would be the quiet quitters and this side would be the diligent workers. And that is a lot of people. Like these people that were quiet and quitting would only work the 40 hours and not a second more. They were openly cynical towards their employers. They refused to work with another coworker and they would certainly not go the extra mile. In other words, they would just do what they're told to do and that's it. Now, I'm not saying that we should all start becoming workaholics today because that isn't healthy as well. But what would be, you know, what we are called to do as Christians is to be faithful as we represent Christ in a fallen world. And being faithful today requires us as Christians to be diligent in our works. And the reason for it is because it's through our works that we can be a testimony of God. I went to Nyack College in Mahan before they call themselves Alliance University and then shut down uh, a couple of years later. But I remember there was an English professor <clears throat> at Nyack who used to work for, I, th I believe it was Columbia University. And there's a thing that she said to us, and, and it really stuck out to me. She believed <clears throat> that Christian students had to do better and be better than all the students that were attending Ivy Leagues. And I remember thinking, wow, does she know that more than half of us are here because we did bad in high school. But looking back, there's some truth to what she was saying. You see, no matter what we do in this life, as Christians today, we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors of Christ in a watching world. Our work, our actions, all of it can affect what the world thinks of our God and the gospel. Therefore, we must be faithful. We must honor those who are above us, even if they oppress us, even if they try to micromanage us, even if they try to slander us. We are to be faithful and devoted in our work because our actions represent God and his teaching. So we must not be tempted to do otherwise. And then Paul begins to shift to the next group. We see the bondservants who are under non-believing masters are to honor. Uh, Paul shifts to bondservants who are under believing masters. Sorry. And in verse 2, it says, Those who have believing masters must not, disrespe uh, not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, there's an interesting dilemma that is happening in the first century church. In this church, you have slaves and masters all worshiping God together as equals. 
As Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, it says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But it's a weird dynamic. Because on the spiritual level, masters and bondservants were equal, but on the social level, there was a difference in authority. And so Paul here begins to exhort the servants to not disrespect their masters. Now, the word to disrespect literally means to look down upon them. It's the same word that Paul would use in 1 Timothy 4.12, where he says, Let no one despise you for your youth. So this word here literally means to look at something or look at someone and consider the item or person as being unworthy or being less of value. So what does it mean to look at someone as being of less value? In this case, it's to look at the masters like they are the servants. It looks like the bond servants were having a hard time continuing their work for their masters because they were both believers. For the masters to be Christian doesn't give the servant permission to disregard their authority. And it surely doesn't give us permission uh, to be bad workers. In the same way for us today, working under a Christian boss should not excuse us to be mediocre in the way that we work. But how can we fall into this trap? Although it might feel quite advantageous for us to work for a Christian boss or a Christian organization, there is a temptation that is present. You see, as sinful people, we tend to override authority whenever we can. So we have the tendency to lower other people's status and elevate our status. For example, being an employee who works for a Christian boss, we can feel privileged to think that we can do whatever we want. We might think that because we have a common savior, we may feel entitled to do certain things. You see, our common spiritual status doesn't excuse us to not follow after the authority that God, that God has set in place. In fact, although we may be adopted as one family, there's still those God has appointed in our lives to have authority over us. And this includes our employers. You see, all throughout this section, as we've been looking at Paul's instruction to the church, nowhere does Paul suggest that in Christ, we are to get rid of all the structure and all the order in this world. In fact, Paul assumes the authority in the household of God as the church cares for the uh, older widows and provide for their elders. And in the same way, the authority relationship doesn't disappear for the servants and masters. But instead, Paul shares that it's still present. Therefore, a principle for us to remember is that we must be careful not to disregard those who have authority over us, especially if they are faithful believers like us. Instead, because they are faithful believers like us, we are to do more. If you look with me in verse 2, uh, towards the end, it says this, and they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. In other words, Paul says, we are brothers. We are a family of God. And that means we should work harder, not worse. Instead of slacking off, we should be putting in more effort. 
Instead of disregarding our brother or sister, we should be lifting him up or her up by our works. Now, this phrase is actually quite interesting because the word for benefit here is usually attributed to a wealthy person who helps, uh, who helps out a poor person. And what Paul is saying is, he's saying that the master is benefited by the servant. You see, in a normal world, it would have been the servant who benefits from his master. But here, the role is reversed. The servant who serves well becomes the benefactor, while the master becomes the one who benefits. And what this means for us today is that when we work for a manager or boss who is Christian, we should never expect special treatment because we stand on common ground. Instead, because we stand on common ground, this should motivate us to work harder because we have the opportunity to be a blessing to them. These are the ways that Paul calls the servants to serve and honor their masters. And this applies to us as well. See, like I said before, none of us are slaves, but all of us are called to be faithful in our work. Being Christian doesn't excuse us to do mediocre work, but it motivates us to excel in our field because of who we are essentially serving. You see, whether you work for a secular company or Christian company, the way that we work testifies of God's amazing grace. Therefore, as ambassadors, we must work diligently and faithfully. And this includes those that are self-employed today, those who are the boss of their own company. As a Christian today, we're, we're in a position to speak of God's amazing gospel through the way that we interact and work with those under us. And I don't want to forget even those who are stay-at-home parents who probably have the hardest job in the world. We must work well to faithfully testify the grace of God as we are home with our kids, raising them. When we think of these principles, it's much easier said than done, isn't it? You see, isn't it far easier to just quiet quit? Isn't it far easier to just take advantage of your manager and your boss's kindness? Isn't it easier to just not do your best work? But what is Paul calling us to do? He's calling us to do far more. You see, at the root of these principles is the fact that it all comes at a cost. The way that we work faithfully and diligently is working hard, and that comes at a cost. The way that we work harder to benefit our brother or sister who is a boss comes at a cost. All of this comes at a cost, where, and this is why there's a tension that is being built up as we try to even practically apply it into our lives. Because the knee-jerk reaction for all of us today is, I can't do it. I won't do it. You see, I, I have a really bad boss who micromanages me. Who, who, it's a really toxic environment. I just can't. You don't understand. But you see, at the end of the day, what these principles require for us to do is to die to ourselves. You see, the only way for us to work hard and be faithful in our work It's not just to physically do more, but it's to die to ourselves. But how do we get there? How can we all be good workers essentially today? 
And the only way to do that is to remember who our master is today. You see, if the master of your life is you, then there is no shot, there's no way that you would want to serve others before you. There's no way that you would want to sacrifice yourself to put yourself in a position where you would want to benefit someone else. But if your master is God, then it all changes. You see, if God is your master today, we don't do good works just to get recognized for ourselves. We do it for his glory. When God is our master, we work hard for others, no matter who they are, because we're essentially serving him. But how can we serve God? How can he be our master? There's only one way. And the only way is for God to become the servant. You see, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul uses that word slave here and servant. And this is what he says in verses 5 to 7. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus Christ, although he was God, became the servant for us. The Son of God became man, became a slave, so that he could serve, not to be served. He obeyed perfectly, and he went to the cross in our place. You see, it's one thing to serve a great master, but it's it's an entirely different thing to serve a master who would be willing to become a servant for us. That's what God did. He became the servant so that we can live. Today, this is what our Christ, our Lord and Savior, has done for us. And because Christ has served us, we are now able to become servants of God. And it's because of him we get to now be ambassadors in this watching world as we work hard and diligently serving him. You see, until we understand this truth, then it will be impossible for us to work hard, be diligent, be faithful, no matter where we are. But if we remember who we are serving, you see, then and only then can we work and serve, serve others like Christ has served us. It's only through this gospel truth that we can be the salt and the light in every workplace in this world. Church, I pray that all of us today would serve God by being the best in our workplaces and being ambassadors of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.